Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's pod is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Happy to be here. And also back this week is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? We missed you the last week or so. I'm happy to be here and very happy to be back. So on this week's podcast, we are going to talk through the role that marijuana can play in both the state's ongoing efforts to reform the criminal justice system and the budget crunch being imposed currently by Governor Kemp. Then things have been quiet on the education front in Governor Kemp's first term, but he's previewed one effort where he may be willing to spend some political capital, and that is on his campaign promise to dismantle Common Core. Now, is that really a pressing issue for our state? We're going to discuss that. But first, we're going to start with a little appetizer before our policy feast, a check-in on the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate. So we're going to dive into all of that today. But before we get into that, Megan, you were actually in D.C. last week, and you spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill being an advocate. Can you describe for us what you were advocating on and what that experience was like? Sure thing. I was advocating for the Equality Act. As many of you know, we've talked about it in uh, past episodes. The Equality Act is something that helps codify uh, sexual orientation and gender identity protections that very similar to the ones that we have based on sex and race. And so what has happened is it has passed the House of Representatives and it has stalled out in uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee. So I was up there talking to both uh, senators and representatives Democrats and Republicans to kind of figure out what the next steps were, if any, and to remind them that this is a really pressing issue considering that we've got three cases in front of SCOTUS right now that could set precedents that could define these things without the law being in place, essentially. So I met with Senator Isaacson. Mostly that meeting was to thank him, but also to remind him that, hey, if you want to do something kind of radical, this is this is on the table uh, this this could be heard in the Senate. Um, I met with um, Representative Doug Collins. I re- met with Representative John Lewis. I met with uh, Senator Merkley, who actually is from Oregon, but he's the one that introduced the Equality Act in the Senate. And then I also met with the LGBT uh, Congressional Staff Association and the Congressional Equality Caucus just to kind of see what their next steps were and what they were thinking um, I got some really information, uh, really interesting information from the Republican side, just to kind of get their perspective on what happened as discussions occurred. And I'm hopeful that um, this is something that both sides ultimately do care about. Obviously, there are some issues. Um, Isaacson, for example, highlighted that RIFRA was kind of an issue that juxtaposed, at least in his mind, was the juxtaposition to supporting the Equality Act. But you know, RIFRA is not completely, it doesn't completely eliminate support of the Equality Act. So it'll be interesting to kind of see if there's any movement on this. And especially if I was, you know, if I happened to nudge Isaacson into considering a radical move before his, before his tenure ends. Now, are these meetings with the members themselves or with staff? Uh, they were with staff. They were not with the members. Um, the members were not available. In fact, while I was there, some pretty important votes were happening on the House floor. I kind of wish I had been able to be in the gallery for those, uh, but the meetings were far more important. I did get to hang out in the gallery while um, representatives were arguing about um, rules regarding the impeachment process. So that was pretty interesting and that got really heated and quite entertaining. But no, I didn't get to meet with any of the uh, legislators themselves. Well, yeah, that's just a little peek into what it is like to be an advocate on an issue on Capitol Hill. I've got friends that work in in policy and lobbying in DC, and uh, they have much the same experience meetings with staff trying to raise important issues. And there is always history happening around you anytime you spend time on Capitol Hill. Um, So with that, let's move to our first topic this week. We're just going to take a peek at what is going on in the races for U.S. Senate and Congress in our state. Um, The biggest piece of news that came out recently that we haven't talked about yet is the release of the latest quarter's fundraising totals. Um, And to just sort of run through some of these numbers here real quick, I I don't think that there are a lot of surprises here, but I'd be interested to get y'all's reactions. And let's start with the Senate race for David Perdue's seat. This last quarter, David Perdue raised $2.4 million. He led the field when compared with 
Democrats. John Ossoff raised 800000 Teresa Tomlinson, 380000 Sarah Riggs-Amico, 310000 And rounding out the four was Mayor Ted Terry. He only raised 90000 in that race. Um, on the other Senate race right now, the only candidate who's really reporting totals is Matt Lieberman, the son of former vice presidential candidate Joe Lieberman, former Connecticut senator there. He's running for Senate here in Georgia. He raised 250000 which was the fourth highest among Democrats when you combine those two races. What are y'all's reactions to those those totals on the Senate side? Is there any surprises there, or is that about what you'd expect with Purdue leading the field and then uh, this sort of steady step down among the Democrats closing out with, with Ted Terry at the bottom of the list? I, I would go so far as to say is this is exactly what I expected. Like I am not surprised that Ossoff literally outraised every other Democrat in the field, uh, even combined, if my math's right, which I think it is. Uh, and <laughs> I'm not surprised that Senator David Perdue also raised a ton. I mean, uh, for a senator in a state that I imagine most Republicans consider completely safe. David Perdue has always been a pretty prolific fundraiser. I mean, he was a pretty good fundraiser when he initially ran. So I am not surprised that he's already initially racking up these big numbers. He also is just in finance circles. And then he's also a big supporter of the president. So you can buy all those things. I am not shocked by this. For the other candidates, I don't think these numbers are deal breakers yet because it is still kind of early but it's the next disclosure needs to see some significant improvement from all of them especially uh mayor ted terry and while you know uh love you ted thanks for coming on the show a lot (laughs) like please man raise more money if you're gonna if you're gonna do a serious race for a second uh because ossoff is going to probably consistently have numbers like these and i think um he's you know going to be hard to beat on that because he's already got more name recognition than maybe even Sarah Riggs Amico, even though she ran statewide already. And, uh, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a race to get people to know who you are. That being said, I, I think, eh, you know, everyone has raised enough that they, they can still be, uh, somewhat competitive. Uh, Teresa Tomlinson improved significantly upon her previous disclosure, which I think is really important. But I also think it's like pretty noteworthy that Sarah Riggs Amico, uh, raised almost as much as she did, and she hasn't been in the race nearly as long. So uh, I guess my last thought would be, uh, you know, Matt Lieberman, unsurprisingly, as, you know, the son of a former U.S. senator, did quite fine with his uh, fundraising, which is significant because he really wasn't in very long. Um, he, he announced, I thought somewhat surprisingly, uh, a couple weeks before the end of a financial quarter, but... Um, considering the amount of time he had, I think that's a really respectable number. Right. Just to build off of what Luke said, this really is the, the fundraising numbers at least just show that this is a popularity contest at this point. And, and pretty much down the list is name recognition. We've got Purdue who's been all over the news endorsing Trump or really endorsing the things that Trump decides to do. And then we've got Ossoff who after the massive race in 2017 has national recognition. The only, the only maybe one that, isn't as uh, obvious as Tomlinson, but she's made a great name for herself recently. And then, of course, Amico and and Ted Terry. And so I I do think that there's plenty of time, like we said, for for everyone else to catch up. And this is definitely not definitely not the end as far as fundraising goes. Yeah, the thing I'm interested in with Ted Terry's total is since Ted Terry entered this race, he's taken a step to the left on two big progressive policy priorities. He went from endorsing Medicare for all who want it to Medicare for all. And then when we asked him about his views on climate change, he did not full-throatedly endorse a Green New Deal. And then we talked on an episode a couple of weeks ago with him about his full embrace of a Green New Deal. These two issues are sort of high-profile issues among progressive and leftist activists that have allowed them to engage with a grassroots donor base largely among people who are very active in politics on the internet. And when you look to the presidential race, you see that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have racked up really significant sums of money from a progressive grassroots donor base, largely based on taking strong stances on these two issues. And I kind of wonder if 
had Ted Terry entered the race as the candidate who backed Medicare for All and as the candidate who backed a Green New Deal, if he would have been able to cultivate a larger national grassroots funding base among these uh, progressives and leftists, if he would have pitched himself as Georgia's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Rashida Tlaib or Elon Omar, Georgia's contribution to the squad. Instead, he did not enter the race with those positions. And while he holds them now, it shows at least some element of political calculation on his point and what is so moving to progressive activists on who back Medicare for All and Green New Deal is candidates who are running based on a deep conviction on those two issues. And so I wonder if there was a strategic miscalculation there. You know, I, I'm not going to sit here and, and say what's in Ted Terry's heart, whether he felt like he had to hold himself back to be competitive in a Southern and somewhat more conservative state, or whether he adopted these views as a way to sort of fill that void on the left that was not being filled. But the fact that he didn't come out of the gate as that candidate Um, I think may have held him back in some ways. It'll be interesting to see if he overcomes that and builds the kind of grassroots donor base that progressives like Warren and Sanders have had success with on the, on the presidential level. Yeah, I would agree with you, Kyle on on the Ted Terry front specifically. Like I am surprised that that is not the route that Ted took. Like I I know Ted I've met Ted, (laughs) like I've had, you know, several conversations with him. Uh, So it's like, I, I, I'm surprised just knowing him that that's not the route that he took uh, because it seemed like a pretty natural route and kind of unavoidable because considering Ted's record as mayor, I kind of think everyone would just assume that's how he felt about things, even if that's not how he felt. Uh, So I was kind of surprised that he wasn't the obviously furthest to the left candidate uh, when he entered the race based on his policy positions, because definitely on his messaging, that is what he was trying to say that he was. But when, you know, compared to his his actual policy positions that didn't really seem to play out. Uh, the other thing I've really just been interested in in this race, because, you know, I am someone who's going to have to vote in it. I found it really hard to distinguish the candidates on a lot right now. Um, like I feel like their policy positions are pretty similar, uh, you know, more than, you know, Reagan's like 80% of what I want. I feel like they're all about 90% the same. And I'm, you know, I'm not hoping for conflict for the sake of conflict, but I am hoping that as the race continues, and it is still early, early May is a ways away, um, I'm hoping that we get to see some more distinguishing characteristics uh, from these candidates and their campaigns, because I have to choose someone, <laughs> and I really uh, want it to be easier than it is right now, because uh, getting a lot of, uh, you know, Uh, different signals from these candidates and so i'm hoping that it doesn't become a mud fight and mud slinging and they actually get into some interesting like policy and just uh personality approaches to how they they view uh the role of senator well there is already some brewing tension between two of these campaigns so the ajc reported today on tuesday the day that we're recording that uh, Teresa tomlinson's campaign manager kendra cotton wrote on Facebook, uh, basically accusing John Ossoff of co-opting John Lewis and his endorsement of Ossoff's campaign by basically always referring to himself and John Lewis in the same sentence. And and she said, let me be clear, every question should not be answered with John Lewis was hit by a brick 55 years ago. It's kind of a blunt way to put it there. Um, But basically criticizing Ossoff for, for overly promoting this endorsement. Um, there was no response from the Ossoff campaign in this article uh, in the AJC. What did y'all make of that exchange or or that miss of being fired by Teresa Tomlinson's campaign manager on Facebook and, and some tangle going on with um, some Democratic establishment figures in the comments of that Facebook post? Is this just people taking shots at each other on social media? Or do we think that there's anything strategic here from the Tomlinson campaign? What were y'all's reactions to to that? My reaction was a bunch of questions. I want to know more. I'd love to get Kendra Cotton's take on this, maybe a little bit of, uh, maybe get her to elaborate a little bit more on her position, as well as I'd like to get Tomlinson's take. Um, I'm assuming and, you know, they say about assuming, but I'm just going to go ahead and say that I'm assuming that Tomlinson was aware 
that Cotton was going to take this stance. And so if that's the case, I do feel like it was probably strategic. And, you know, worst case scenario, this is one of those situations where there's no such thing as bad publicity. So, but I would like to know if it was, I'm assuming it was more strategic than that. And I would like to know more. Yeah, my reaction was that it may not have been all that strategic. It, uh, to me, sort of struck me as like trash talk on the basketball court. But it would be interesting to to me to see if this sort of precipitates an arms race with policies that address racial equity in this campaign. I think all the candidates currently in this race for produce seats support a study of reparations. Um, I don't think that there's been a lot of discussion in this campaign yet, partially because it is very early, but I don't think there's been a lot of discussion in this campaign on a really aggressive agenda on racial equity yet. And so it would be interesting if Tomlinson took the approach of, yes, John Ossoff has the endorsement of, of John Lewis. Obviously, John Lewis is a civil rights icon, and nobody doubts his credentials on racial equity. But the candidate who has the strongest stance on racial equity in this race is Teresa Tomlinson, and here's why. So it'd be interesting to see if this is backed up by some substance in the future, or if this just remains the sort of venting that campaign operatives do, uh, that they used to do offline to each other and, you know, at bars and stuff, but but now increasingly takes place online on Twitter, on Facebook, on other social media. Um, it'll be interesting to see if this grows into something or if this was just kind of a one-off. Um, let's take a quick peek at some of the other races before we get into our big topics this week. So in Georgia 6, Lucy McBath, she's the incumbent here. She led the field 620 grand raised last quarter. Uh, Karen Handel, you might expect, is second in terms of bringing funding in. She raised 250 grand. State Senator Brandon Beach was next. He raised 166 grand. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is another uh, conservative, like Tea Party conservative in that race, she raised 100 grand. Um, anything surprising there, I think that's probably pretty standard for the incumbent to be leading in that. But that was formerly a very conservative district, Luke. Do you think that that basically makes sense? Yeah, I really don't find these results that surprising. I would say Lucy McBath's number is right around the range I would think it would be. I could imagine it being, you know, 200,000 plus or minus that. So that seems right. Uh, I'm kind of surprised Karen Handel didn't raise more since she's run so many times. But also that kind of answers itself that she's run so many times, not won so many times. State Senator Brandon Beach, that's about what I imagine he would raise. Uh, They're both going to have to raise more than that if they are wanting to uh, beat Lucy McBath. But, you know, it still puts them in the running. And then, you know, uh, our uh, extremist candidate Rose, something that keeps her in in the conversation, unfortunately. Um, And then in Georgia 7, this one's interesting because this is such a wide open Democratic primary. Carolyn Bordeaux, the candidate from last cycle. She raised the most. She raised $280,000. She has about equal money in the bank to Renee Unterman, probably the most well-known Republican in that race. They both have about seven hundred grand in the bank. Staying on the Democratic side, State Senator Zara Karinchak, she was the most recent entrant into this race. Um, she raised $200,000 uh, and put her in second among Democrats in that race. Nabila Islam, who we talked to before, she raised $100,000. Brenda Lopez Romero, who we talked to before, she raised $32,000. What are y'all's reactions to the Democrats in that race? Any surprise that Zara Karinchak was so competitive? Or, or do we think that she can mount a serious challenge to Carolyn Bordeaux, who was the Democratic nominee last time? I think Bordeaux is a really strong candidate, so I think it would be quite difficult for someone to stand up to her. That said, it's not impossible. But those numbers from her last election were incredibly close. Um, So I really think that it would be hard for someone to catch her, especially since she's already gone through one cycle of this. She knows what to say. Um, She knows what's going to win her base. And so the issue just becomes she needs to turn out more of her base. I don't know. It, your guess is as good as mine, but I really think that it'd be hard to catch Bordeaux. Yeah, honestly, the only number that surprises me up here is that 
Brenda Lopez Romero didn't raise more. You know, Nabila Islam, first time candidate, but she worked in finance, so she definitely knows how to raise money. Uh, she's always been great at that, so I'm not surprised that she raised a good number, uh, considering, you know, her political experience. Um, and, you know, again, running for state senate, those are pretty big districts. You have to raise a lot of money, so I'm not shocked that a state senator was able to raise uh, enough money to be competitive with the Democratic nominee last time. Uh, but yeah, Brenda Lopez Romero, like that's just not a competitive number. <laughs> like, I, you know, uh, sh- I think she is the one that got in the race latest. So that might be part of the reason why the number is so low. But I, I, I'm not surprised that this is a competitive race because while, you know, people in the Georgia political community always talked about the seventh as being very competitive for whatever reason the media really focused on the sixth probably the Ossoff race and how close it was and so people kind of forgot about the seventh then after Bordeaux got so close last time like I'm not surprised that there are people putting up real challenges to get this nomination because with Woodall leaving looking at the numbers in a vacuum the seventh is a much better district for a Democrat than the sixth so I'm not surprised that McBath is, you know, holding on to her uh, primary as of right now. And I'm not surprised that the seventh is competitive because I think there's a lot of people that view uh, whoever wins the Democratic nominee is quite possibly the next congressperson from that district. So it it makes sense. Um, I'm pretty sure that State Senator Zara Karinczak is the most recent entered into that race. But um, well, that's true. That's a really impressive number then. Yeah. Um, on the Republican side, uh, State Senator Renee Unterman, she's obviously the most well-known candidate in this race. She's uh, been a longtime state senator within the 7th Congressional District for the state legislature. She has $700,000 cash on hand, so she didn't raise the most in her race this quarter, but she had a lot of money in the bank to play with. Um, it'll be interesting to see once Republicans start really tangling with each other in this race, if it turns out any different than you might think looking at it. Um, Lynn Homerick, who's a former Home Depot executive, her and Unterman were sniping at each other a little bit on social media, but but otherwise I don't think there's been real uh, conflict in this race just yet. So we'll keep an eye on these races moving forward and all these storylines that start to develop at these, as these campaigns mature here. But for now, let's move on to our second topic this week. So we spend a lot of time both on this podcast and in our general political conversation as a state talking about two key issues, reforming our criminal justice system and ensuring that we have a healthy state budget to fund important priorities. But these discussions have largely overlooked the implications marijuana may have on both of these fronts. So today we're going to blow a little smoke about the role weed could play in reforming our criminal justice system and supporting state revenues. (laughs) I see what you did there, Kyle. But the place I want to start here is the basic framework by which we feel this discussion should be had, because I think there are some people, there are probably some people in our listeners who would be like, why in the world are they talking about weed? Like, this is not something that has been on the forefront of a Georgia political conversation. It has been nationally, and it has been in more progressive states, Um, but what is what are y'all's takes on just how we should have this conversation, whether it's something that should be focused on policy or whether this is a question of morality or a question of government intrusion in general? What are y'all's first impressions on how any conversation about marijuana decriminalization and legalization should be had? First and foremost, from Georgia's state perspective, this is a conversation about revenue. Um, if if you're going to compare weed and its negative effects and whatnot to the same negative effects uh, or similar negative effects to tobacco, I would say from my perspective, tobacco might even be worse just because of the addictive nature and the fact that cigarettes have so many additives that they can it can really cause some major health issues. So if we're pretending like we're comparing apples to apples here, you've got states that have massive tobacco industries that get a ton of revenue from that. And with Georgia being an ag- agricultural state, it seems like a no-brainer for us to try to grow something and try to make money off of it. Therefore, you get the marijuana industry. I think that this conversation 
has been a lot more sophisticated in, in Georgia than people probably give it credit for. Because I, I would think that most people would think that the conversation is very much in the line of Georgia being a red state and people just being morally opposed to the idea of marijuana legalization uh, on any front and that the reason why it took so long for uh, Georgia to come around to doing medical marijuana uh, is with those reasons. And that is definitely true to some extent. Uh, I'm not going to like completely say that that's not going on because there's definitely some people at the state capitol who are just morally against marijuana, period. Um, but I think the medical marijuana conversation has revealed a lot about how this is going to look in Georgia. Um, the first thing is I don't really know any legislator who would feel comfortable coming out against marijuana period in a real way like making that an issue that they really fight and talk about at this point because of how positive the medical marijuana conversation has been and really what slowed that conversation down more than the moralistic uh, arguments were just the i would say legitimate concern uh from governor nathan deal and other people allied with him that even though the Obama administration was a federal administration that was fine with marijuana and really let, you know, were, were, they were open to letting people experiment with the laws around marijuana, that administration would come in and, uh, you know, reverse that. And I think now that we had Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who is quite possibly the most anti-pot politician in the United States, uh he was attorney general and nothing really happened to Colorado or any of the other states that completely legalized it. So I think that conversation and that argument is going to have uh, less effect going forward. And then combine that, I know we're going to get to this, with the budgetary constraints that uh, Georgia is facing and the fact that our climate's not terrible for potentially growing marijuana. That I, I would be shocked that if there is no legitimate conversation on this topic. Now that doesn't mean that they're not, they're going to do it, but they're going to have to talk about it because governor Kemp has some priorities that cost money. <laughs> and I, I would be shocked if some of the libertarian more minded members of the Republican party did not bring this up as a way to pay for some of the things that Kemp wants to do. Now that's funny. Cause I actually have the exact opposite impression about where this conversation would go. Um, so the AJC did a feature a couple of weeks ago now about marijuana decriminalization in Georgia. They wrote that since 2016, 12 cities or counties in Georgia have passed local laws that limit criminal penalties for possession of marijuana. And, the, and they noted that 1.2 million people live in jurisdictions that at the local level have decriminalized marijuana possession. Now, local regulations and local laws are different than state laws. But basically, this article was a preview of a conversation about this. And the spokesman for the House Speaker, David Ralston, retweeted this article that I believe the the headline in the article asked if Georgia was a state that was about to decriminalize possession of marijuana. And the Speaker spokesman just said, no, we're not doing this at the state level. So I am much more pessimistic about whether or not there will be a real conversation on decriminalization for recreational use. And I think part of the reason that I'm more pessimistic about it is because a lot of what the opposition to medical marijuana put on the table during debates over the last three or four legislative sessions was that this was somehow a slippery slope to recreational use of marijuana being normalized in the state of Georgia. I would contrast what you're saying, Kyle, with the facts on the ground now uh, where we are in a position where we are growing some marijuana in Georgia. Uh, it's, you know, of course, incredibly regulated by the state. We're allowing universities to do research into marijuana. And those are just things that even four years ago, I feel like, would not happen because of the argument you just said, because uh, the legislature was so concerned about the possibility of going the recreational route. And I think the things that have changed since then 
is the Jeff Sessions example, like I just said, and then also the success that the states that have done this have had. And, you know, we should give our legislators credit because even though they are part-time and many of them are far more conservative than uh, we'd like them to be on this issue and many others, like they're not blind (laughs) and they're always looking for ways to get more revenue that doesn't involve raising taxes. And when... Other states are doing this. They're getting a lot of money from it. It's not causing a lot of problems. Maybe it's solving other problems in the way medical marijuana solves some problems. I think it's going to be harder and harder and harder for them to keep that line up because, the one, the population of Georgia's opinion on it is changing very rapidly. And two, I think they're just going to see dollar signs and they're not going to, you know, it's just, it's just not going to stand up because of uh, those issues. And then throwing the criminal justice arguments on there too, uh, while, you know, some Republicans aren't as far along on that as they should be. Governor Nathan Deal really did push that issue quite hard. And I feel like uh, that's, kind of loosened up people's imagination on that issue and they're they're willing to think about being more radical on it at least as a thought experiment where in other states that it wouldn't even be considered so just the fact that this is something that can come up in conversation and not be laughed down is really really significant and my last point on what Ralston said, Ralston also said that we you know, wouldn't pass RFRA in years we did, that we wouldn't pass a radical abortion beer, a bill, and then we did. So as much as I respect Ralston and respect the uh, role that he has and the influence that he has, that's not exactly a bellwether. What Bag is telling us is that David Ralston will not be the person pushing this and that he will not be asking for it behind the scenes. And I also think it's true that this is not something we're doing next next legislative session, but it's something that we might do two, four, six years from now. Because the the last thing we want to do is be the last state to legalize if this is where the tide's turning. And I really think, while we might not be in the first wave, uh, we definitely could be in the, like, upper middle early middle tier of states that do this yeah i think the the lesson from the experience on medical marijuana is this is definitely a long-term process a former republican state representative alan peak this was something that he made a signature issue of his service in the legislature he spent a lot of time meeting with families who had children who suffered from conditions like seizure disorders which were found to be somewhat alleviated by the use of medical marijuana oils. Um, And he was actually going to Colorado, a state that had a more mature medical marijuana program and bringing back uh, these oils to patients here in Georgia, actually violating federal law and openly violating federal law to do it um, so that some patients here in the state could have access sort of slowly, but surely the state began to set up a regulatory framework for a system of distribution of medical marijuana in the state. But then Alan Peake left the legislature. And really, he left at a time where we kind of thought that this issue was solved. But earlier this week, the AJC reported that the medical marijuana program set up by legislation this session has actually stalled because the people who are supposed to appoint members of a commission that's supposed to govern the cultivation of medical cannabis in the state, um, that the people who should be appointed to that board have not been appointed yet. And I kind of wonder if there is some of this sort of moralistic opposition to this as marijuana is bad, we shouldn't have a medical marijuana program, if that is driving some of the delay, or if there are other issues related to federal and state interaction, um, and federal and state laws that are that are part of this delay. But Georgia is not breaking new ground by having a medical marijuana program. Plenty of other states do already. And so it's hard to look at what's going on in other states and the delay that we've seen in our state and, and just 
assume that it has nothing to do with the opinions of the people who have to actually carry out this law. So I do think it would be a very long-term conversation. Um, I am interested, though, to see if, you know, we've we've also been talking about casino gambling as a revenue generator in this state, and you can actually raise similar moralistic objections if you have them to casino gambling as you could to recreational marijuana in the state. Conservatives have raised these same types of objections where they cite studies that say casinos bring increases in crime and increases in risky activity because it's all about gambling. Um, I think it's a little unclear. And there's always this tension between vocal social conservatives who may carry the same water on casino gambling and medical marijuana and the moderates who are looking at hard numbers in the budget and saying we have to find a source for revenue. That's why it's interesting to me that there hasn't been a more public discussion around this. Maybe it's happening more quietly than we would suggest, but states that have legalized recreational marijuana have seen pretty steady increases in the funding that has been raised, the tax revenue that's been raised. Colorado and Washington have both had legal marijuana markets in their states for four years now. And in Colorado, the annual revenue that's been raised has grown from $100 million in its first year to $250 million in fiscal, fiscal year 2018. Washington's market is even bigger. They started 2015 at only $50 million in tax revenue raised. They've increased by 2018 to over $400 million in revenue raised. And states that have legalized recreational marijuana are using that tax revenue to fund things like school construction in Colorado. And in Washington, the majority of that money is going to health-related programs, like a basic health plan and funding for the state health care authority. So states have looked at marijuana-related tax revenues to fill sort of core functions in their budget the way that you would uh, sales tax revenue or income tax revenue um, or the revenue that is raised on excise taxes from cigarettes and alcohol. So they, so this seems like it would be appealing to state lawmakers, but it's not a discussion that I've seen taking place really publicly. Yeah, I think that's all right, uh, Kyle. The, the only thing, the only caveat I would add is that like, I would never put Georgia on a list of states that would never do this. It's just a state that's going to do it a little bit later from now, but it's something that's going to be in the conversation and it's going to be realistic uh, compared to a lot of our other Southern neighbors. I kind of feel like we're, we're going to do it before a lot of our neighboring States and a lot of other States that are uh, considered Greg. That's my primary point. Even if it takes a while. I think that's accurate. And I also think that just the changes that you're seeing in Georgia, Georgia becoming a more purple state as well as Georgia being a state that's all about business and also all about its agriculture. Uh, The marijuana industry kind of ends up being the intersection of several of these things, depending on what lens that you look at it through. So I think that this could be something like you guys have been saying that is on the radar, maybe not soon, but in the next four to six years, we might see some movement on it. So one thing that may impact this debate is a series of deaths that have been caused by vaping. Um, And these deaths have primarily been driven by vaping THC products, which is the the active ingredient in marijuana. Megan, how do you think that these deaths that have been caused by essentially consuming a marijuana product, do you think that it makes it more likely or less likely that uh, states should consider legalizing this product? I think it will make it less likely, or at least states will proceed with caution. I want to be clear, though. It is not just THC-based products that are causing vaping deaths. Vaping deaths have actually been caused also by essentially counterfeit vaping products. These also include the tobacco products. These include just the chemicals that are used for these products. I don't know if anyone's ever, if any of our listeners are vapors or have ever vaped before, but I know that I gave it a shot for a hot minute and you could just go online and order whatever you wanted. And there was no way to know if it was regulated. You know, the website could just say, oh yeah, this has been approved by whatever. And so all all of that has been pretty unregulated so far. And so I think that there is some cause for concern 
from that stance, but I really hope our legislators don't conflate that particular issue with marijuana-specific issues because they are separate. The vaping issues are occurring whether marijuana is in the picture or not. Well, I actually think that it's a reason to legalize recreational use and then create a regulated market as opposed to continuing a a prohibitionist approach and then cracking down on an unregulated market. Because I think vaping products that contain THC are the main driver of these deaths. But it's unclear, particularly in unregulated markets, but also for non-regulated products in legalized states, it's unclear what other kinds of chemicals are in some of these vaping products. And so it's, it's the difference between if you consume just like straight flower marijuana, you don't have additional chemicals involved. But if you're consuming it in a vaped product, there are additional chemicals involved. And if you don't have a regulated market, then you don't have restrictions on how those products are created, on the chemicals that are used to create them, or consistency from the consumer's perspective that you are purchasing something where you know exactly what it is that you'd be consuming. So I think that it's actually, to the extent that these products exist, and sort of one of the main lessons I think that comes from the war on drugs and the extreme prohibitionist approach that has been used on marijuana and on harder drugs, primarily since the 1970s, is that you cannot completely eliminate the supply of these products, and you cannot eliminate the demand from some people for them. And so if you only crack down in a legal sense, and all of the costs that come along with that, including racially disparate enforcement, African Americans are three times as likely to be arrested for marijuana possession in Georgia, but they're not more likely to be users. Use is generally pretty consistent across race. Um, all of the downsides that come along with that also basically prohibit you from ensuring that there is a safe product on the shelves for people who want it because people aren't going to get it off of store shelves. They're getting it in an unregulated black market. Um, so I actually think it is more reason for them to legalize it and regulate it because as we've seen, people who are getting injured or dying because of consuming this, they're consuming it anyway, whether it's legal or not. That's true. And one of the things that I just want to bring up for the sake of bringing up is you mentioned, Kyle, that having a regulated market, um, you know, not only allows for controlled tax and revenue, but also allows for the actual substance to be controlled and knowing what's in them. Well, let's talk about the tobacco industry for a second. The, that industry really runs rampant with as far as what they put or don't put in cigarettes. If we were talking about tobacco straight from the plant, you know, you'd have a lot fewer issues than what we have currently with cigarettes having tar and formaldehyde, formaldehyde and whatever else. So from that perspective, the regulations that we're concerned with related to THC and marijuana shouldn't exist because we're already allowing one one industry that's comparable to essentially do whatever they want. You know, this sort of raises the other side of this argument from people who would say that legalizing and increasing access to these drugs is actually problematic. Even if you don't endorse it, there's sort of a middle ground here of like, you can decriminalize possession of drugs like marijuana and even harder drugs than that and sort of eliminate the downsides from the criminal justice perspective, the racially disparate enforcement, the fact that people get thrown in jail and their lives get completely thrown off track by possession of a, in some some cases like marijuana, relatively harmless drug. But even there's arguments for doing this for more harmful drugs because they wouldn't possess these drugs if they weren't addicted to them. The The other side of that, though, is some people will argue from this middle ground that if you legalize possession and basically open up access to it, that we have done a poor job in this country through private capitalist markets of limiting consumption of really anything at all, that the primary driver for a lot of private companies who sell a product to you is to continue to sell more of it. And then once you bought it once, you should buy it again, you should keep buying it. And that I think is somewhat evident in cigarettes, it's somewhat evident in alcohol, it is really prevalent in the opioid epidemic, where 
companies who have manufactured opioid products have not only talked to doctors and encouraged them to prescribe more of it, which has then addicted patients and increased the demand for it. They've also leaned on Congress and other regulators to get favorable regulatory environments so that some tools that are in place through the FDA that would limit production of opioids, that those regulatory tools have actually been set aside. Um, We've all known the dangers of cigarette smoking for years, and yet some people still choose to do it. Um, and despite limits on marketing, you know, you don't see cigarette commercials on TV anymore. Um, people still have access to these products. And for those super addictive ones, it's sort of a capitalist market approach that wants to sell you more and more is really bad for a substance that is also addicting in tandem. Now, marijuana hasn't been shown to be addicting chemically in the same way that nicotine and cigarettes is or that uh, the active ingredients in opioids are. But that's sort of the other side of the coin there of like, you can make progress on the criminal justice issue, but a unlimited capitalist market for these products does nothing, at least in the American experience, uh, to limit their consumption. So I think to wrap this up here, this really is just the beginning of this conversation. And we'll talk more about it, particularly if it becomes a moving issue in Georgia. But As other states have found when they have legalized recreational marijuana, this opens up a whole mess of policy issues that have to be dealt with. There are currently issues with banking laws that the federal government is trying to work out because the federal government still counts marijuana as a Schedule I drug and banking regulations related to uh, the trafficking and sale of Schedule I drugs have basically made marijuana business, a cash-only business in the states that have legalized recreational use. Um, So there's downstream effects there. There's downstream effects with human services policies, things like if you are a mother of a young child or if you're pregnant and drug use is prohibited in a way that if you are using drugs, you are a danger to your child and can have your child taken away. If you then decide to legalize marijuana on a state level, but it doesn't change on a federal level, a lot of those regulations for state human services agencies are based on federal law. And there's an issue there for like moms who use marijuana, even if it's used in a limited way. Um, And then there's public safety issues Um, how marijuana impacts your driving or operating heavy machinery. Do we have reliable tests for actually determining when someone is operating a vehicle when they're too stoned to do so? Um, And is the enforcement of even public safety issues like those, does that enforcement happen in a racially disparate way? Those are all really messy policy issues that would have to be figured out as states walk this path. And so that's one reason that Georgia may be lagging and that other states like Colorado and Washington and Massachusetts and California states that are developing legalized markets, those are the policies that they're dealing with. So let's close with our final topic this week. So one issue that has been relatively quiet during Governor Kemp's tenure has been education. Yes, Governor Kemp campaigned on a $5,000 raise for teachers, and he signed a budget in his first legislative session that had a $3,000 raise for teachers in it. But teacher raises don't cost a lot of political capital. Nobody opposes paying teachers more. But in recent months, Governor Kemp has given us hints on where he might actually spend some political capital in education, and that is on a laborious dismantling of the Common Core state standards. So what does it mean to dismantle Common Core? And is this really the best use of the governor's energy? Let's close the show this week with this discussion. And Luke, can you start us off by just telling us a little bit about the political issue that is Common Core? Common Core is basically our state education standards, but it became a political hot topic in conservative politics late in the Obama administration why was this such a divisive issue for Republicans? So I, I think it's funny that this is a divisive issue. I think it's actually particularly funny it's a divisive issue in Georgia, considering that Sonny Perdue was one of the people that helped push Common Core. Uh, but I, you know, my impression of it is interesting because I saw some of the Common Core-isms start to... Uh, come into the education system and uh, you know so it is it's mostly after my time in 
uh, K through 12, but I have relatives. So I, you know, I, I'm kind of aware of what it is. And so I think there's kind of like two through lines of people that don't like common core. There is the basic political argument that you come to love and expect from Republicans of uh, this era who, you know, basically it is something that Obama wants to do. So I do not want to do it because Obama wants to do it. And it's, and then they create the arguments from that starting point. And the arguments they created were that, you know, as a federal takeover of education, uh, the more legitimate complaints that I've heard and, you know, experienced uh, revolve around common core uh, having a requirement for a lot of testing and that it teaches some subjects, especially like math, in a very, very different way than uh, people were used to. And so uh, that, at least in my mind, is where a lot of the opposition in Common Core comes from. So we're talking about Common Core now because earlier this year, Governor Kemp published an op-ed in the AJC introducing a plan that he called laborious that was meant to dismantle Common Core, which is a campaign promise that he made. He basically set up a commission to review the state standards and to basically recommend new ones. It's really unclear where this process goes from here. I think to some extent, it does in a substantive way lend itself towards reducing the burden of testing. Uh, Governor Kemp and the state superintendent of schools did a tour this spring of schools around the state and communities around the state to hear about the burden that standardized tests have placed on students and teachers. They heard a lot of horror stories from people who get very anxious about taking tests. And there is room for the state to reduce the number of tests that are required. The state currently mandates more tests than the federal minimum allowed under law. But beyond that, it's hard to know where it actually goes. Governor Deal, during his term, reacted to political pressure about Common Core in order to review of the standards. There has been sensitivity to this in conservative politics, but the standards, as Luke noted, are something that both Republican and Democratic governors worked on. They're meant to align the curriculums across states so that if you move from one state to another, your education is not thrown off. And so that students, regardless of the state that they live in, gain a common core set of skills. That's where the name Common Core comes from. What do we think about his prioritization of this? Do we think that this is a good use of the governor's time? Or are there other issues that are maybe more pressing that that he should be spending some political capital on? Well, I mean, is this actually a priority? <laughs> like, is this just something he's talking about and doing the visuals that make people happy and make it seem like he's doing something in the same way that Governor Deal was definitely going to reform the QBE formula. I, I, you know, I'm not convinced that this is going to be some radical thing where we completely throw out Common Core and Brian Kemp and you know creates a new education system. Like I, I think this is going to be cosmetic changes. And uh, you know, on the over-testing front, I, I won't be shocked if we see a significant reduction in testing, and we definitely should because there's just way too much <laughs> testing, and it does not help anybody. Um, so there, there's some easier, smaller things that he can do uh, on this that I think would be good ideas. And it's funny because everyone talks about how Nathan Deal really focused on education. And, and don't get me wrong, he did. I mean, he did a lot of things on education, but I feel like... He put he a constitutional amendment on the ballot. Right, what that failed. <laughs> but, it failed, you know, yes. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think what's kind of interesting is that, uh, you know, Deal very much focused his attempts to reform education in Georgia on like saying what he didn't like and saying that, you know, like there are failing schools by these metrics and we don't like that. So we want to change it and we're going to create a thing that will change it. Well, how are you going to change it? We've created this thing that's going to change it. And so it'll be interesting to see if uh, Kemp has to be in the position where he has to actually say what changes he thinks need to be made because I mean everything always needs tweaking so like it's been a while since we've looked at Common Core uh, I'm sure we could tweak it and improve the way that we're implementing it or having a completely new system in Georgia I'm sure there's improvements that could be made um, so 
that's an important thing. Georgia has a long history of being a state that has a good education system. So I'm hoping that this is not a uh, attempt to <laughs> change that, uh, you know, because credit where credit is due. Uh, I think one of the biggest problems Georgia's had is that we have not prioritized our teachers and paying them more is a very important thing. And to uh, improve people's lives as teachers with more money is always great but there's also administrative burdens like too many tests that i think could be addressed and i hope are i'd argue that it's actually a little bit irresponsible for kemp to be going after common core for the exact reasons that people were opposed to common core in the first place which is that it causes a disruption in education it causes major changes and it's really expensive to redo all of the education that's been created around it. You know, Common Core has been in place now for a while. Teachers are used to teaching it. Students are used to learning it. And so one of the big oppositions to implementing it originally was that all of that was going to have to change. And so for Kemp to say, okay, well, we're going to, you know, this has been in place for, I think, almost a decade now. Let's change it all again. Like, that seems really irresponsible and actually really wasteful. It's one thing to say we're going to focus on education by supporting our teachers and supporting our schools and make sure, making sure education is fully funded and whatnot. But it's definitely it's definitely a different thing to say, okay, well, let's take something that is more or less working, testing aside, that's its, that's its own issue, and rip it out just because we didn't agree with it in the first place. Yeah, I agree with that, Megan. And, you know, that very well might be what Governor Kemp ends up doing. I, I kind of just feel like he's not going to do that for all of the reasons you just laid out. Uh, because the worst thing that Kemp could do is on this grand rhetorical point, I, Governor Kemp, has de- have destroyed Common Core. And, you know, he gets his line of applause. But then, you know, six months later, everyone hates his plan more than Common Core. Uh, you know, so I, I, I feel like that's a real possibility. And I would be shocked if they don't try to account for that in some way, shape, or form. And the way that I think they will account for that is to do tweaks. But, you know, we all know. Brian Kemp uh, is impervious to pressure sometimes, uh, you know, which we've seen in how he's been approaching the the budget cut issues. So maybe he will go, uh, you know, for that Hail Mary. Right. Well, if he does that, he might as well be saying, I, Governor Kemp, just cost the state millions of dollars in reforming education from a program that isn't actually broken, which, granted, we did that already. But we don't need to do it again. Yeah, this makes me think that to some extent, Governor Kemp probably has a relatively small vision on education. I want to give him I want to first give him credit for the teacher raises. They didn't raise teacher pay significantly at all during Governor Deal's tenure. That was certainly a very tough time for the state's budget. And there were lots of cuts in other places. And education was spared at times when other services were not. And then by the end of Governor Deal's term, they had fully funded the formula for the first time in over a decade. And what Kemp did to raise teacher pay by $3,000, and he still says that he will get to his full goal of $5,000, does put more money into schools by making teacher salaries more competitive and hopefully retaining higher qualified teachers, particularly in districts where performance has lagged. Higher pay for teachers may encourage them to stay there, although I think that in some of those districts where performance has lagged, you would need even higher pay, sort of bonus pay for teaching in a tougher district than you would have if you taught in one where performance was already higher. But I think one place where Governor Kemp doesn't seem to have a vision and where Governor Deal tried to have a vision, I want to give him a little more credit for his constitutional amendment that failed, was addressing the issue of schools with chronically low performance and particularly schools in Georgia's Black Belt, which is a historical designation for a region of the state where during the 1800s there were large, there was a large share of the population that was enslaved um, and that because of the geography and the history of that area, that for those counties that make up the Black Belt, there have been lingering political and policy issues like underinvestment and things like schools. Governor Deal had a proposal for 
addressing those issues. I don't think it was a very good one, but he at least put one on the table that we haven't seen from Governor Kemp. But I think this is a good time to mention a new report from the Georgia Budget and Policy Institute that takes a distinct look at schools in Georgia's Black Belt and offers up policy solutions that are aimed specifically at improving the educational experience for kids in those schools. These are still schools that are predominantly African-American that have been underinvested, uh, I think, for political reasons, for for those schools being less of a priority, but also for economic development reasons where these these are all counties that have not developed in the same way that more wealthy counties in the metro Atlanta area have. And so they have fewer resources from a local level to give to their schools. And the state has not adequately accounted for that by providing additional support to those schools from the state level when they haven't had the ability to raise that revenue locally. So Stephen Owens, who is the author of this report, he offers up three policy solutions that I think are really worth considering here. He proposes creating an opportunity way to serve students living in poverty. This is basically additional funding for schools that have a high concentration of students living in poverty to ensure that even more resources are delivered to those schools, particularly from the state's funding formula, so that there are more resources to invest in the kids in those schools. He also proposes revising the equalization and sparsity grants to better address district-specific needs. These are two grants within the education funding formula that largely account for the fact that the schools in Georgia's Black Belt are schools in relatively rural parts of our state that are losing population and that don't have the ability to raise that local revenue. And so the state has yet another tool within the funding formula to prioritize those schools and the resources that are delivered to them. And then his third suggestion is to reinvest in pre-K and improve educational outcomes there. The research on pre-K is super clear. It's an early intervention for students. It's the most important time to invest in students' academic success is early in their lives because it sets the table for what comes after. I think all three of these are good ideas that are doable and that would serve an agenda both of racial equity in terms of specifically investing in those schools to improve the educational opportunities for a group of people in our state, African-Americans who have been shortchanged for far too long. But I think it's also a rural development issue because giving more economic opportunity to people living in rural parts of our state may mean more economic development in those regions may lessen the brain drain of people feeling that they have to leave those regions and come to Metro Atlanta or go to big cities on the East Coast to be successful, to live a comfortable life. If there were if there was a greater concentration of people who had a good educational experience and were creating economic development in their own communities, this is one way to attack that rural development problem that Governor Kemp is super invested in. So I think that that amounts to a larger and more specific vision about what could be done on education, but it's one that, setting aside the teacher pay raises, which I think are important, but it's one that when you look at attacking the standards, somewhat reducing the burden of testing, those ideas do not meet the severity of this problem. And the ideas here proposed by GBPI do meet the severity of that problem. But do we think that the fact that Governor Kemp is not proposing something with this kind of vision, does that mean that this isn't as high a priority for him, you think, or or that he just doesn't see the state as the one who should be solving this problem? I don't want to get in Governor Kemp's head, um, but a sympathetic view would be that Governor Deal thought about the QBE formula a lot. The legislature thought about the QBE formula a lot and really did not think it needed much more than some tweaks. And that's why there was no major reform of it. Uh, now, obviously, with the facts that you just laid out, they're wrong about that. And there's more that the funding formula could do or other programs that are supplemental to the funding formula could do. So with that being said... I don't think this is on his radar, especially because 
uh, as important as everything as you just said was, even if Governor Kemp was 100% aware of it and 100% in agreement with you, they are struggling to find money to take the $3,000 teacher raise to a $5,000 teacher raise. And to do anything about what you just laid out would cost substantial amount of money. And so even if Governor Kemp cared about this issue, thought about this issue, I don't think he's in a political position to talk about it because he would basically have to say, this is a huge issue which we will do nothing about because we don't raise revenue in the state of Georgia, we cut revenue. And this would cause us to raise revenue. Right, I'd agree with Luke on that for sure. I'd also just take it a step further and say that these particular issues don't, don't, uh, I don't want to overstate this. They're not as aligned with his base um, and, and the things that his base might care about. His base is very driven by revenue. And I think that the idea of what Luke already has outlined, allocating more revenue to solve these problems that have been outlined, um, that's going to be less enticing than allocating revenue to support teachers because teachers are much more relatable. Yeah, or to support tax cuts. I mean, I think this is what weaves these two big policy-heavy topics that we've discussed together today are, is that the state has a revenue problem, and there has to be political will to raise revenue, and it would be a good use of the revenue that we'd raise to try to close achievement gaps and close close the gap between whites and African Americans and the educational experience you have in this state that would be a very good use of that revenue, but it requires spending political capital to raise it. And instead of looking at a potential recession and finding ways to raise revenue from people who are well off, we're having a conversation about spending cuts that would have a disproportionate harm on people who are not well off. And we're looking at some band-aids in terms of casino gambling or even the marijuana conversation that we had. It's not the end-all be-all of revenue raising. It's a little bit of extra money and it's great, but it's not raising revenue the way you would if you increase the income tax. And instead, we'll be talking about decreasing the income tax in the next legislative session. So I'm relatively pessimistic on this under the current administration and the current General Assembly in really attacking this problem because it is an issue of revenue. And that is what has stopped conversations around QBE reform before is you look at this and you say, we need more revenue. That's the answer. This issue about opportunity weights and sparsity grants and improving education in the black belt, you need more revenue. You need a change of the political conditions to be more amenable to raising revenue. And if you don't have that, you're not going to make ground on these issues. All right. Well, that is unfortunately a somber note to wrap on, but that is where we are going to leave it today. So Megan, thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me as always. And Luke, thank you. Glad to be here. All righty. We'll talk to you all next week. Bye guys. Bye. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.